Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, please help me welcome Daniel Riley. Thank you, everyone. Um, wow, there's some great faces here. Um, just to uh, talk a little bit about this book, um, Rosecrans was talking about um, the fact that I'm from Manhattan Beach and grew up in um, the South Bay, which those of you who live here know a little bit about that. Um, this book is set in 1972 and 73 in, um, in a town called Sela del Mar, which is based uh, loosely on uh, the, the South Bay at that time. I obviously wasn't, wasn't around then, and so this is really a story that um, um, you know, kind of comes out of the, the fabric of where my parents um, came from when they were there at that time and the people that I grew up with, the stories that I grew up with from that time. Um, just to say a little bit about what that story is, um, Fly Me is about um, a young woman named Susie Whitman who follows her uh, sister out to Southern California to fly for an uh, airline called Grand Pacific Airlines as a stewardess. Um, the book is about um, this town, these sisters, um, uh, the, the airline industry at the time, but it also quickly becomes about uh, a drug running scheme that she gets wrapped up in and then the skyjacking epidemic that's taking place at the at that time, sort of like at the, the height of uh, that epidemic. For those of you who don't know, that's when... Um, because it was pre-screening, pre-metal detectors. This was when, um, as frequently as one flight per week was being hijacked um, by people trying to get uh, a number of different things, um, trying to get to, to Cuba or uh, ransom or, or whatever. And so it's kind of this interesting thing of the the slow, low-key, um, kind of interesting psychology of a, of a beach town in Southern California, which, um, you know, for all the people who live there and, and love it, and, and feel a way about it. There isn't a ton of, of um, books about that kind of meshed up against this, um, the story of this young woman kind of getting wrapped up in, in, in overhead. Um, so the book starts on the 4th of July, 1972, and it's sort of this um, languorous... Uh, set piece that opens it where Susie falls in with a local named Billy Czar who um, she takes a shine to even though he's sort of um, sort of very different than the, the boys she's met back east and um, kind of spends this day with him and as the, the day unfolds and she gets closer to this red eye that she needs to fly back to New York um, they, they get wrapped up in some business and, and uh, she is sort of seeing him um, off as she drives to the airport, and um, and that's what I'm going to read from is the last scene of of this um, first part on the Fourth of July. Um, if I can get my place back, okay. So this is this is um, Billy and Susie after Susie has realized um, throughout the day that she's been um, maybe accompanying him on his drug runs throughout the town uh, with what she thinks is pretty low-key business and maybe a little more intense as the day goes on. And this is Billy saying goodbye to Susie before she heads to the airport. You've got to go, he says. Let's go. 
Billy walks her to the car, and she gets behind the wheel. They hang there in a disparity of height, and then before she throws the transmission into gear, he bends down and kisses her on the cheek. Well, I bet I see you tomorrow, he says, and she chuckles at the presumption and pushes out, his hand tracing the curves of the car the way it would a body swimming underwater. Susie parks in short term and hustles over to check in. She's technically under the wire, so the ladies in charge at flight ops state their disapproval with their eyes only. She carries her bag into the office. She's weighed and told to, quote, give your makeup another go, which makes Susie snort. She's the last one to arrive, but heads straight aboard without any of the other girls pausing to comment. She's flown with one before, Meredith. She recognizes another from training in Chicago. They board a half-full flight, run protocol, pour drinks for first-class businessmen whose midweek holiday is now over. Susie brews coffee for herself and lets it cool while she hands out headsets. This is how you buckle a seatbelt. This is where you go when you survive a crash in a cornfield. This is when the lights will go out. We'll be arriving at 8-ish in the morning, East Coast Daylight, Wednesday, the 5th of July. One final time, happy 4th, everyone. She's seated right up front next to the boarding doors, back to the cockpit. Before she's really had time to overthink any of the moves at pre-flight, she's buckled in with a heavy click. Meredith asks her if she has a copy of the new Cosmo, and sad-seeming, Susie says, no, sweetie, I'm sorry. She closes her eyes, a knot of dehydration nestled right up top in the crack between the two hemispheres of her brain. She begins to drift as the plane makes the sweeping ascent she observed one after another half a day ago on the beach. Really, what just happened? She left the house, watched the planes take off, then something was followed by another thing, and now she is at work. It all happened right there, too, on the beach below them now, beneath the canopy of the flight path. She'd been looking for something in Sailor Del Mar she could grasp concretely, something besides just the breaking of the clouds to convince her she'd landed in the right place after all. She'd spent the last month circling Sailor without certainty, skating from this end to the other, slipping past passengers, wrapping the place with a loose string of comprehension. And today, it seems, she finally pulled on the free end of that string and cinched it up, all at once tightly conceived, knowable. She's finally gotten a grip. Before long, the plane levels, and Susie prepares fresh drinks for the passengers in first. She looks for something to cut the edge off the coffee in her blood. All they have in the cabin is unheated breakfast, egg sandwiches, dry oatmeal, so she digs into her carry-on bag to look for the PB&J she made in the morning. As she feels around for the sandwich, her hand graces a familiar light fabric she couldn't have packed. She pliers it out with her index and thumb and knows it, the half of her shirt that wasn't left with Hamlet, with Billy. This, too, has writing on it now. Susie, need an assist, por favor. Won't require much. Please say hello to a friend of mine who hangs at the airport. Might be a guy, might be a gal, possibly one of each. They'll meet you when you get off the plane, and they'll know what's up. They just want to say, hey, I know you didn't ask to be a part of this, but it means a lot, and you just might dig it. You're bitching for real. Billy. She fishes around in the bag and finds it without trouble. A brown paper sack, sizable. The top is rolled over into a handle. She unfolds it and looks inside. A one-gallon Ziploc bag stretched tight like a pillowcase around a five-pound sack of gold metal flour. Susie crumples the paper bag shut with a swift ceiling off, like trapping a bat in a bed sheet. Motherfucking fucker. Her eyes are on the passengers. She swallows and stands and stuffs the paper bag into a deep corner of her carry-on. She assured herself it was a casual gig, Billy making scratch for burritos in a 72 and sunny zona of limited consequence. Nothing real. But what were her grounds for dismissal? She'd known him for 12 hours. 
Meredith clicks in next to her again and triumphantly presents the new Cosmo. An overweight man with leather cream skin throws his arm into the aisle to get their attention. Meredith sighs. I've got him, Susie says, and zips up her carry-on and buries it deep in the crew compartment beneath all the other luggage. And for the next five hours, without a break in the night, she stays on her feet, pacing extra attentive, casting vectors with her eyes from all points of the service aisle, up toward the front of the plane, and the bag within the bag within the bag within the bag. Um, And then the rest of the book (laughs) happens after that. so that's, yeah, that's it. That's when the, the drug part starts of the book after. Um, okay, so that's it for, that's it for me. Uh, Rosecrans um, is going to do a similar thing right now. Um, like he said, I have the, the privilege of editing him at GQ, um, where he's done some, some great stuff for us. It's just like always some of the most, um, the most fun pieces, um, whether that was uh, learning how to hunt with his uncle in Montana or... Uh, trying to qualify for the U.S. Open in tennis um, as a as a super amateur, and and then most recently um, a piece on Roger Federer for us in April. Um, on uh, the side, uh, you know, besides all that all that great stuff, um, he has this is his third book, um, second novel, um, and and like. Uh, Rosecrans received mine. We kind of did this trade, and I can say the same thing about his. It's just uh, it's kind of amazing to work with somebody in one mode and then see what they're doing on on the side, and just kind of this this book um, this book is really great, and it uh, it it just sort of has this um, symphonic quality with all these different voices and characters, and this this great driving um, this great driving story. But really, just it's populated by these these people that. Um, and I'm curious to see what you re- you read from it, but but definitely check this out. It's it's terrific. That was really sweet. Thank you. Uh, but I know we we talked about this before, but we didn't say it at the beginning. Thank you, Skylight, by the way, for having us. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, so. Seven years ago, I was in a small town in New England. I was reporting a story for a magazine. I had an interview with a local historian. Um, it was about an hour long. It was useless for both of us. I think he really like, didn't like me at all. And as I was leaving, he's walking me out to my car, and he said, um, so did you ever hear about the scandal, by the way? I was like, well, what scandal? This is honestly the most interesting thing he said after 60 minutes of nothing. And I said, no, 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 what was it? And he said, well, it happened back in the day. I can't really talk about it. There's still people from the families involved that live in this town. Uh, but basically, and then he sort of gave me a little taste of it. He's like, you know, it's just there was these two kids, and they were in love, and then there was these murders. And then he like, keeps giving me a little bit and then backing away. I was like, you fucker. Uh, and so he finished it by saying, well, you know, you can look it up in Life Magazine. I can't talk about it. And so we parted ways. About a month later, eBay, I found the appropriate Life Magazine and arrived in the mail. So, two-page spread, 22 photos that basically became uh, my daily bread and butter for the next six and a half years. Uh, what happened was, just to give a quick glimpse of it, uh, late 30s, small town, uh, small, this kid, 19 years old, he shows up in New Jersey, having driven around New England for a couple of days, probably drunk. Two bodies in the back of his car, and he's passed out in a parking lot. Uh, cops pull him in, confesses to murdering both of them. It was a home invasion gone wrong, local doctor and his wife. So, kid is schlepped back to his hometown, put on trial. It seems like a slam dunk for the prosecution. And very quickly, things start to change. 
The kid's story changes. Uh, his confession has all these holes in it that don't make sense. Suddenly, other people in town are getting roped into the story. Uh, this is all true. I'm not. This is not any of the fiction. His uh, girlfriend, who is significantly younger, uh, is involved, we find out. Her father is involved. He's the local sheriff. I can't go much further now without starting to give stuff away, but the point is... I couldn't look away from this magazine. It was these two pages, that's it. But oddly enough, for whatever reason, in the late 30s, uh, this story became a sensation in the States and beyond. They had reporters flying in from London, from Berlin, from Miami, San Francisco, New York. And again, this tiny town, you know, you think of like Peyton Place with Mia Farrow. You think about, I don't know, choose your small idea of Maine or New Hampshire, and that's what's happening. And then suddenly it explodes. Uh, So I uh, wrestled with it for a while. I knew I wanted to write something. tried writing a historical novel, that didn't work. And then it's, it dawned on me, and that's probably the only time in my life I've used the word dawn in minutes, sincerely. I realize how pretentious that sounds. But it dawned on me uh, that that story existed in the 30s, fine, but a lot of it ex- could exist now. And I got inspired, and I was like, okay, well, screw that. I'll take that story, just the inspiration that I find on these two pages. I've never learned anything else about the case than what was on those two pages. And uh, write a story set now that's sort of inspired by the bones of that story. Uh, So I'm just going to... The trouble with this book is I can't really read from it without starting to give a lot of stuff away. So I'm just going to read a couple small short things from the beginning. Uh, The book is told from a variety of points of view, so I'll just sort of lay them out ahead of time. One is the kid himself who showed up in that car in New Jersey. In this book, it's called his name is Nick. Two is his girlfriend. Her name is Emily. She's back in New Hampshire. Uh, And three is this uh, police chief in New Jersey who latches himself onto the case, um, kind of having nothing better to do. Uh, so, just very quickly, um, a couple of snatches from the start of the book. And thank you all, again, for coming. No one like got up for donuts and beer. I assume that you're all waiting for after. You're very polite. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Number one. Nick Toussaint Jr. clutches a handle of tequila by the neck. A pair of Range Rovers wing around him, playing tag in the rain. An orange moon, slightly low, hangs over New Jersey. He mashes the gas pedal. A surge of acceleration fills the hollow in his gut. Two bodies lie still in the back. Number two. And this is from Emily's perspective. Halfway up the mountain, inside a farmhouse, built when New Hampshire was still agrarian, before Claymore became a beach town for motorcycle clubs, Emily Portis stares into the yellowness of her sheet, presses her ankles against each other, holds her hands balled into her abdomen because she's ruined everything and now there's nothing she can do. Outside, the chickens don't cackle or make their scritch-scratch sounds. Father calls up from the kitchen about something she's done wrong. His voice enters through her skin. Her left cheek twitches. Little things she feels with vivid precision. Emily holds her eyes open bravely and turns on her side. Two nights ago with Nick, there was a bright silver bridge. Now he's gone. Three. Eagle Mount is a secluded community in New Jersey of 19,000 people, two yacht clubs, an osteopathic training school, a Bridgetine convent, and the award-winning roses of the Fairmont Casino Gardens. You can smell the roses nearly anywhere you stand. Not one resident of Eagle Mount could be said to be completely unhappy. Everywhere there are vistas, tidy homes with widow's walks, breezes untangle rather than snarl the little girl's hair. And by nature, the town is on the lookout for omens and hurricanes and carpetbaggers, those Norwegian cruise ships of ruin. How much fuller is happiness when it doesn't need to be observed? Shouldn't we all live in such a way where we can say whatever's on our mind? 
Saturday night, the touchiest business at the Selectman's meeting is the news that teenagers are drag racing near the beach. The neighbors are upset, as are a colony of piping plovers who are safeguarded by environmental statutes. But the laws are, aren't clear about enforcement. People are confused as to what to do. So it falls to Martin Krug, chief of the Eagle Mount Police Department, to calm the room. In his own way, Martin embodies the positive image that the selectmen have acquired about their community during his tenure. He is their familiar, unassuming, stable, easy to sell as one of the Jersey Shore's model citizens. They listen to his plan. They'll miss him when he's gone. Uh, Martin is about to retire shortly later. I realize I should have prefaced that. When Martin's finished, the agenda is reviewed, the minutes are approved, and everyone walks out to their cars untroubled into the sort of prelude that only a community like Eagle Mount can impart. Because as soon as a person asks himself or herself, how can I live my life in the best possible way? Are not all other questions answered? Martin climbs into his department-issued truck, a Dodge Durango, one of the few cars that can fit him, and drives his aching back across town to the Eagle Mount Arts Center, new as of October. Some of the center's windows are opaque, some are blue. During the day, they appear to be part of the sky. At night, the classrooms glow white, as if filled with smoke. He parks, cuts the engine, leaves the windows rolled up. He can't stand, excuse me, he can't stand the smell of the goddamn roses and waits for the appearance of his cheating wife. The Mexican, oh, sorry, four. Uh, the Mexican border is 38 hours going 60 miles an hour, 30 if Nix goes 80. That assumes he doesn't get stopped by the police. He presses the accelerator, sips tequila, so that his father will reappear. When Nick was eight years old, he cow-tipped his dad as a joke. Christmas morning, it was a white Christmas, Nick shoved his dad and the old man fell over backward, laughing. He windmilled his arms and landed in the kindling bucket. On his way back up, he pressed his hand on the chimney plate. He shrieked a second later, they all heard it. When he ran his hand under the tap, his palm erupted with tiny white bubbles. It made Nick sick to watch. He drops the tequila. It's not out of vengeance, it's from fatigue. The bottle splats on the parkway. His eyelids sag like they're filled with water. He scratches a cut in the corner of his mouth and thinks agonizingly of her. And how, and how two people equal the smell of two people, the smell of two dead people. Up ahead is a great pink something. Uh, we're going to learn shortly afterwards that great pink something is a massive statue in neon of a cowgirl with a swinging skirt and I had someone a friend ask me last week like so where did you find that cowgirl I was like I invented it I was like come on give me some credit like I mean, it's not like I'm just like dragging this out of life magazine you know like I thought that was a cool image uh, <laughs> uh, and then two last ones even at 59, Martin dislikes his largeness. He wishes he were more average. To purchase sneakers is nearly impossible. Age hasn't made him any prettier, and still his great curse is vanity. He passes a mirror, he can't help but look at himself. His face is tawny, with thick skin like an orange. At his wife's hair salon, he picks up magazines and studies how the movie stars wear their clothes. He wishes he had such compact proportions. Martin watches the art center from a scrunched position. The front doors slide open. Out walks a pair of older ladies in navy blue, followed a few seconds later by Lillian, his wife, who looks fantastic, of course, as she pulls on her tan coat, who does so many things to stay in shape, plenty fit for those yoga pants, more than lovely enough in all cases. But if more than enough, perhaps too much for one man. A flimsy rain falls in the dark. The laptop in the car is equipped with a satellite connection. A quick search gets him to a website for medical practice in Cheslehurst. His, his eyes jump to a status feed for ampersand Dr. Kim Fee. Um, if you follow enough podiatrists on Twitter for a week, you get all of like, the language of podiatrists. 
Anyway, this is update. Surgery Friday, three hammer toes, one radio frequency neuroma, five nails, two surgery centers, one office, and now art class. Hashtag tired, hashtag podiatrist. <laughs> Martin looks up as the, te- as the teacher exits the building. Dr. Young-Soo Kim, podiatrist, part-time art instructor. Lillian smiles impassively, despite the drizzle, laughs politely at something said, and it's her false laugh he hears. He knows a stage performance when he sees one, even from a woman amply guarded, tricky for any man to predict, let alone her husband of six years. She pauses on the walkway in a dark patch. The women keep going. The doctor catches up. She says a little something, an aside below the breath. Slow eyes meet as they both turn in the same direction, down the sidewalk, every gesture mundane, magnetically aligned. Martin's chest clenches, his lower back throbs. He was married previously, a bad marriage. His ex-wife now lives out Seattle. Seattle. Their daughter, Camille, is in Southern California, 27, forever in one graduate school after another that he pays for. But he rarely sees or hears from her. He doesn't blame her. She was 17 when he and her mother separated. And in 17 years, she never had a dad who wasn't drunk one way or another. But ever since he quit drinking... Ever since Martin took the job in Eagle Mount and met Lillian at a meeting two weeks after he arrived, his focus has been on the here and now. Career, sobriety, marriage, the present moment, the gut-burning present moment. I'm going to call it there. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.